If you've journeyed with us a while, you'll know that I always seem to find some old guy to show a video of. I think there's great wisdom in listening to people who have matured in the faith beyond what we have. And I decided to show that video this morning really for three reasons. One, I will shamelessly plug any theologian, any Christian thinker that I think would benefit us as a people of God to get to know their works better, and that man is one of them. Two is because it's relevant to the topic today. And three, as we're journeying in the book of 1 John, I don't know if you guys do like I do, but when I'm, when I'm reading scripture, like I always imagine the person speaking, and the idea that I get about John, like the picture or the voice that comes to mind, is very much that right there. Because you see, when John writes this letter, he's late in life, he's an elderly man. We are about 60 years post-resurrection at this point. John is a man who has matured beyond many of the youthful arrogances that we know he had and we see recorded in the gospel when he's ready to bring down uh, fire and destruction on people um, who are not followers of Christ. So he's seasoned. He's a man who speaks with humility and a man who speaks with love. If you've been doing as Jason um, has suggested in reading through 1 John, I hope that you see that with John, you have a man that is very compassionate and cares deeply for this church that he's speaking to or that he's writing to. I hope you see a man whose words carry great power, but his demeanor was humble. We see it in the way he talks. And we see it in the way that he addresses a serious situation in the church. First John is a book, is a letter that is concerned greatly, among other things, with relationships. John, this elderly apostle, this elderly pastor in the church at Ephesus, has found himself in a difficult situation. Sixty years have gone by. He's probably the last living apostle at this point. We're fairly certain of that. He's among the last of those who were eyewitnesses to the events that took place. And as time has gone on, false teaching has crept into the church. And it's damaging the church and it's damaging relationships. You see, in the church at Ephesus, they were becoming influenced by what was known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is kind of this mix of Greek philosophy with Eastern mysticism. And at the heart of what they typically believed is that the material was bad and sinful. You must throw the material off. And in so doing, you might find salvation for the immaterial or the inner light, they called it. And they were trying to mix this, mingle this with Christianity. Yet, we know from just basic, simple doctrine that this cannot happen because if the material is sinful and there's no hope for it we have a real problem when it comes to looking at the nature of Christ you see not only was Jesus fully God but he was also fully man and as they come in and they start teaching this <coughs> it's disrupting the church it's disrupting what the people believe so John steps in to correct this and he's going to tell them again an old truth that they already knew. He's going to remind them of where their hope and where their assurance is grounded. This morning 
we're going to skim through the entire chapter rather than taking a few verses and looking at them because I don't think we can really divorce the first section from the second without dealing with it as a whole. I think there's some important things that we can find by looking at this chapter in its entirety. But as we skim through, we're going to look at two very important truths. The first thing we're going to look at is what does it look like to be a child of God? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And the second thing is we're going to look at what it looks like to love fellow believers. You see, love, as we will see, is our natural response to a supernatural transformation that has taken place in our lives. So before we start, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're not a God that's left us alone. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God that has revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you're a God that loves us. God, I just pray that you would give us the humility to hear your words, God, to let it speak to our hearts, and God, to filter our thoughts and everything else through what you've revealed about yourself to us in your word. John starts chapter 3 in kind of an excited way. He says, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world do not recognize that we are God's children because they do not know him. You can almost feel the excitement in John's words as he's beginning to address these people and what it means to look like living as a child of God. He says, see. In some translations, it'll say, behold. If you look at the Greek word, it can also mean to visit or experience. He's saying, everything I'm going to say depends on what I'm about to say next. This is important, and this is the source and the cause of our life change. So he starts this letter by pointing immediately to the Father and to the Father's love for us. Now, when we talk about a father... Uh, in our culture, I realize that for many that can be problematic because inevitably, regardless of how good your childhood was, the image or the example you have of a father is a sinner. And my dad's sitting right there, so, you know. <laughs> but it is of a sinner. So even if you had a good childhood, you've still got a tainted image of what a father is like a good father, a loving father, a perfect father. It was no different when John wrote this to the Ephesian church. You see, the Ephesians, uh, as being part of the Greco-Roman world, a father was not someone necessarily that we would describe as being loving. You see, in their culture, the one that they were saved out of, the one that they were in amongst, a father his relationship to his family was much like a man's relationship to his assets. It was kind of like a bank account or livestock or something like that. So they had a tainted view of a father. And likewise, today, many people will reject God because they have a tainted view of a father as well. We, grow, we grew up in a culture that presented Homer Simpson and Al Bundy as the picture of fatherhood, and we wonder why it is we have a hard time struggling with what it looks like to be a, God, a good father. Not only that, many of us have suffered tremendous abuse um, at the hands of a father, and the damage that that can cause to those um, that it's inflicted upon. 
But with God, we see something very different. And we must understand what He is as our Father. You see, with God, we do not have a Father tainted with sin. We do not have a Father who is incapable of loving us fully and completely. We speak of God as being love, but even, even in that, we can, we can err. Because sometimes we think love is just this gray-haired, benevolent old man who only cares about us getting what we want in life. We think of love as a what can I get out of the situation. But with God the Father, we see a love grounded, rooted in truth and in self-sacrifice. Not only do we see a Father who loves us, but we see a Father who is holy and a Father who is just. That's odd to us because a lot of times when we think of the justice and the holiness of God, we recognize the very real separation that exists between us and God. But what we have to understand is that with God, we do not have a lacking of any of the attributes that make Him good, holy, and perfect. He is love. He is mercy. He is also just, and He's also holy. And where we see His love and mercy come in is when we experience the fact that there is justice in the universe, that God is in control, and that He cannot, because of His holiness, turn His back on us, we see him providing a way, a way that if it wasn't for that, we would have no hope. So with God, we see a perfect father who is both light and love. He is just and holy, yet he is also love and mercy. Not only is he love and mercy, but he has chosen, as Sue was saying in a kid's moment, to, to, to dump this love on us. Uh, she, uh, Sue mentioned what the Greek word is, and it, it's this idea of, uh, of uh, what country did this kind of love come from. It's so radical. It's so different than what we as sinful humans are used to seeing or used to, or expecting to have happen to us that when we experience it from the Father, it causes us to wonder where in the world has this come from. Now stop and think about that for a minute. God provided a rescue. He provided a way to reconcile us, sinners, rebels, against him to be made right in his sight. That's his love. And if it stopped right there, the grace that was extended to us in just that is amazing. And we would have no reason to complain and every reason to thank God. But God doesn't stop there. He actually takes it a step farther. He doesn't say that he only loves us, but that he makes us his children. We have become children of God. The Apostle Paul, often, when discussing what it means to be a child of God, speaks in terms of adoption. We understand adoption. We know what adoption is. It's when someone who was a ward of the state or a ward of some institution has been brought in and is made a member of a family. There's a name change, there's an identity change, they've gone from being this to where now they are that. There is a very real identity change. And Paul is absolutely right in using that as the example. But John, John I think paints a little clearer picture. John says that being a child of God is brought about by new birth, 
we are born again. That's what Nicodemus had a problem with. You remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he's asking Jesus these questions. And it's, how can I be saved? And Jesus said, you must be born again. Because Nicodemus, at that point in his faith journey, was still so steeped in pharisaical um, religious legalism, he's thinking that to be saved, I must do. I must follow this plan, this path, or something like that. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, an identity must change, and this is something completely a part of what you can do, it confused him. But that is the picture that John uses to describe what it means to be children of God. We, being children of God, have been brought into his family. And because we are in his family, we begin to show some of the family characteristics. How many of you guys, there should be like a cute picture of my kid somewhere. Ah, there it is. How many, when a child is born, do you take that thing and you look at it, and everybody starts talking. They're like, oh, look at, in this case, look at her hair. That's a picture of my daughter and my wife at around the same age. And we look, and we notice that there's certain characteristics that are the same. Um, we say things like, their nose is the same, their hair is the same, things like that. We expect for there to be physical similarities because they're part of our family. They are a part of us. We also expect that some of what we do um, carries over to them in our actions. Like when my kids throw themselves on the floor at Walmart and kick and scream. My wife likes to point out that they got that from me. I don't know where that idea came from because I've never thrown myself on the floor of Walmart kicking and screaming since we've been married. Target, however, uh, you know. But we see that the child exhibits the parent's characteristics because she shares the parent's nature. Our rebirth makes us quite literally children of God. And because we are children of God, this is going to give us a new attitude towards the way we look at life, particularly sin in our life. And because we have a new birth, we now also have a hope, we have an expectation, and we have an ongoing transformation. Listen to what John says. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. I mentioned it already, but Jason encouraged us to all read 1 John over and over and over again. And I want us, um, particularly as we look at these few verses right here, to understand that we can never pull a passage out of the overall context from which it's coming from. I think if, uh, if you heard what was read, particularly in verse 3, there is some danger that can be done to our theology if we refuse to look at verse 3 within the context of 1 John 3, the chapter, or within the context of 1 John or the scripture as a whole. So context is vital to our understanding of what is being said in this passage. And we can take and isolate verses, and many do, and come up with a theology that is wholly inadequate uh, and is actually heretical and very dangerous. And that's 
what the cults commonly do, but we do not have to do that because we've got the completed work. So with that in mind, we're looking at a topic that often causes a lot of confusion among people. You see, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about right standing with God, when we get into the sometimes muddy waters of faith and works, it is easy because of our sinful nature and because all of human society, past, present, and future, says one thing, for us to believe what God has actually said. So I want us to be clear, very clear, on what John is and is not saying here. He says that we will purify ourselves. Anytime you see righteousness in Scripture, it is never a means for us to, to become children of God. It's never to become children of God. And within the context of this particular verse, we already see that we're already God's children. He's talking about those who are already in the faith. Whatever's going on after this in verse 3 has happened after verse 2 where he says we're already the children of God. Righteousness is not a means to gain entrance into the family of God. Rather, it's the evidence that we have actually been born Again, so we look at this topic of self-righteousness, um, of growing as a Christ follower, of purifying ourselves. There's two kind of extremes that exist in the church. One extreme, way over here, says perfectionism. That the child of God, this side of eternity, will one day have the ability to not sin anymore. You see this a lot in the Word of Faith teaching. You don't see it in Scripture. John said that he who says he's without sin is a liar. And we see from the verses here that we're expecting something better later, that we're in a process. But what happens with perfectionism is it becomes all about us and what I can do and what I can say to make God happy with me. The thing about perfectionism is it turns us so inward that we are focused so much on ourselves that we miss our Savior. The second extreme is the one in which I kind of grew up in, and that's easy believism. That's this notion that because at some point in the past you have done something, confirmation, walk denial, VBS, whatever the case may be, that you're now saved. I've sat through countless sermons uh, during uh, funerals where it is proclaimed that the person in the box is in heaven because on that day in 1967, yet they have lived like hell for the rest of the time from them. Easy believism denies the power, the present power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It's saying, essentially, God loves me enough to save me, but maybe not enough to transform me, and that's absurd. Both, both of these extremes will rob us of the assurance that God has promised us. Both extremes cheapen grace and make God something much less than what he actually is. But it does raise the question, can I be sure? John says, I write these things that you may know. John says, I write these so that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, as we looked at last week. Can we have assurance 
it's a question that if you're in ministry of any type or capacity, you're going to be confronted with over and over again. I don't doubt for a second that there's those in here today that would question whether or not they're actually in the family of God. So can we say that we have it? I think we can. You see, first off, if we're asking whether we're in the family of God or not, it's usually because we care. Dead people do not reach out for rescue, only those who are alive. It's been my experience, as limited as that may be, that those who do not struggle with assurance and yet live a life that is not marked um, by righteousness, not marked by the Holy Spirit living in them, they don't care. They don't mind. It means nothing to them. But to those who are believers, it causes great concern because the reality of the two natures that's living within them. We look at ourselves and say, why am I this way? Why do I do that? Why do I still struggle with this years later or whatever the case may be? The questioning is a good thing and the questioning means you're looking in the right direction. Philippians 2.13 says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. This is something the Apostle Paul was intimately aware of. We think of the New Testament writers as oftentimes being these high up, ivory tower type individuals, and we forget that they were very much men. They were frail, they failed, they were guilty of many of the same things that we ourselves are guilty of. And that's why in Romans chapter 7, we see Paul dealing, struggling with sin that's in his own life. He says, wretched man that I am, why am I this way? I do not want to do the things I do, and I don't want to do the things that I do. He's saying, who can rescue me from this? And as we look at all of Paul's writings, it's probably, or it's very likely, that what he was struggling with was explosive anger. He had, he had anger management issues, and he notices this in his life. And he's saying, why am I this way? And then he gives us the response in uh, Romans 8, verse 1. He says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is talking about is the reality that we are all born sinners. If you doubt that, have a kid. I guarantee you, like literally, like two days in, you're going to believe in total depravity and the sin nature of humanity. Um, and if not, I've got kids. I'll loan you, and uh, they, can, they can help you with that as well. But we see this struggle between the two natures that exist between a Christ follower we have on this one hand our old sinful nature and on this other hand this rebirth this new birth and we're the only ones that really even care about it you see those who do not have the life of God in them are still over here in their sin nature there is no war going on because they're quite content in being rebellious against God in fact I doubt they even know that they're being rebellious towards their creator so the acknowledgement of sin is a good thing. It shows the inner struggle between the two natures that we have living inside us, God's Holy Spirit and our own sinful desires. And the two will be in conflict if we're children of God. But listen to what John goes on to say in verse 3. 
He says, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. How absurd it would be to think that we would eagerly expect the return of someone that we're rebelling against. For those of us who leave and go to work and then come home, and you know when you walk through the door, the first thing those kids do is just pile up on top of you, right? Daddy's home, daddy's home, that whole deal. And you barely get through the door without hearing daddy's home and running to you and everything like that. Unless mom's been on the phone with dad. <laughs> and dad now knows that the son has done something he shouldn't have done. And the son knows, dad knows. And it's just a matter of time before dad comes home. Then there's not a real good expectation of dad coming home. And then it's kind of more of a hesitation. It's more of a, um, I'm going to have to deal with this. But he says that we are expecting um, Christ to return. We're expecting him to come back. Um, not because, um, not because, uh, that, not because we're in rebellion against him, but because we're, we are his children and he has begun the purifying work within us. We know that when we stand before him, we will be unashamed. See, the one we know is Christ and John is now going to take the focus off Jesus or off the Father, and he's going to turn it on the Christ and how um, that plays into this in John chapter 3 and what it means to be in the family of God. He says in verse 4, Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Once again, the danger here is to take this out of context and to make this perfectionism, easy believism, whatever route we want to take with it. We've got to understand where everything stands. Now, when we talk about what it means to be a child of God and what it means to have Christ as our rescuer, I think perhaps one of the greatest things we can do is to look at the picture of ourselves before salvation. You see, before salvation, we were willing rebels. We lived in open defiance against our Creator. We cared nothing for His law. We cared nothing for His words. In fact, we were ready to reject Him wholeheartedly, many of us, or some of us even hold on to Him, but we're holding on to ourselves so tightly that we just kind of reach out there to God just, just a little bit. And I think this picture of what someone looks like kind of pre-salvation is important for us to look at because it helps us to understand what we look like post-salvation. You see, we live in a world where sin is all around us. And as I've already mentioned, the Christ follower will still struggle with sin, as will the non-believer. Yet the non-believer doesn't seem to care. You see it all the time. I mean, you've got two people who commit basically the same sin, sometimes exactly the same sin. One is broken. One tries to justify it. One tries to say whatever the case may be that makes them kind of feel good about what they're doing. And that is the picture 
of us before salvation. We're trying to hold on to God oftentimes with this hand and hold on to our sin with this hand. And what we're doing is denying the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. If we can live like this, where we're, ah, me and God, we're kind of got our own thing. We kind of do our own thing. He, he understands. He understands. I, I do this because X, Y, Z. If we're trying to live in that world, it should cause us to question, seriously question, whether we're children of God or not. Yet, if we find ourselves in sin and we're broken by it, we can't live with it, we can't deal with it, since before we didn't really care before Christ, and now we do what has changed. And it's God's life in us. So it is um, also God who has performed this work in our lives. You see, let's not make it about ourselves. Let's remember that it was Christ who came to take away our sins and that there is no sin in him. Some other kind of fuzzy things there uh, in this chapter that I'll just mention briefly. But the language, it, it's easy to see where if you just look at certain passages, people will go particularly to perfectionism or to be concerned because there is still some sin in their lives and say, I must not be a child of God. But what we have to understand is the words being used here are speaking of someone who practices sin. Someone who is okay with it, living in it, justifying it, and could care less what God actually has to say about it. So as we read this, I don't want us to read condemnation if there is that thing that we may be struggling with. I want us to read that there is actually freedom from it, yes, but there is still that struggle between our old nature and our new nature. So this should cause us then to ask the question, what is righteousness? What is right standing before God? Simply put, righteousness is basically the opposite of sin. Okay, well good. What does that look like? How do we know we're living lives that are pleasing to God? The first thing we will retreat to, the first thing we will try is to make this all about rules. I know. I'll come up with a checklist. And if I keep this set of rules, this list, this whatever, then I must be living a righteous life. I'm going to dogmatically cling to these things, and I'm going to try to force others to cling to them as well. Is that righteousness? Scripture says righteousness is a little more simple than that. John speaks of it here. And it's something we've all heard. Righteousness is love of God and love for fellow believers. Brotherly love is much more than just a Christian cliche. In fact, it's so important that, that love for fellow believers is the evidence John uses to prove that we are in the family. It's what he uses to give assurance of salvation. Are you growing in your love for the brothers? So righteousness, among other things, is very much relational. 
And that's why it can never be about rules. And we'll look at an example of that in a minute. But we try to make things about rules. And that's what religion does. It says, if you're going to be right, you, you, you do this. I saw a sign the other day. I can't remember where we were, but I pointed it out to my wife. But it said, get right with God. That's the attitude we have. We need to do something to try to earn favor with God. And that is the banner and the calling card of all religions in the world. If you want to be right before God, you do X, Y, and Z. It's much different with Christ. With Christ, it's relational. It can never be about rules. Because you see, here's the thing about relying on a set of rules. If we took every command in Scripture and we were to boil it down, every thou shalt not that we can find in the Bible, we're going to find that we're really only left with two commands. And Jesus gives them to us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the, uh, this is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. We see in commandment one that we are to love God. That is righteousness. And it is from that that the second command flows naturally. You see, our righteousness grows with our relationship with God. The more that we're spending time with God in prayer, the more we're spending time in His Word, in fellowship with other believers, the more our righteousness is going to grow. The more our love for His law and His commands are going to grow. This is a love that, that of the law that apart from the relationship we would hate and we would despise. That's why when we look at the unbelieving world we can see that when they read the law of God because they have no relationship from Him, they, they read condemnation where we read perfection. They read restriction where we, we read freedom and the difference between the non-believer and the believer is the relationship it is that that makes us righteous it is he that brought us into this relationship and it is he that continues working in us john gives us a perfect example of the antithesis of loving the brothers he mentions the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, we find in Genesis chapter 4. Listen to what John says. We should love one another. Okay? We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. Nothing says, dude, I don't really like you or love you more than a good murder. You know, that's pretty much proving that you hate your brother. And why did Cain kill Abel? It's because the two had been commanded to sacrifice. Cain brings his offering and it's rejected. Abel brings his and it's accepted. Cain gets angry and he kills his brother. But we see that Cain wasn't even a child of God. See, to Cain, his sacrifice was a, an attempt to appease God with Abel acting from a pure heart 
His sacrifice was meant to please God. That's why it can never really be about rules. That's where we see fake versus true righteousness. <clears throat> and that's the bad example. That's like the do not do. But we're not really left in the dark about what we should be doing, and the band can come on up. If we continue reading in John, we see in verse 14, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know that real love, what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so we, we will be confident when we stand before God. The children of God will love each other. The two great commands, we can't, we can't take that lightly. I mean, he's reduced down all these commands in the Old Testament and everything. He says, really? Here's what it's about. And Jesus does that over and over again in the New Testament. It's like, your hearts are here. You're trying to do this. Let me tell you what the law was for. The law was to show you this and this and this. But here's the heart of the law. And we see it summed up here. Love God and love your neighbor or love the fellow believer. And when that's absent, it should cause us to question there should be a growing fellowship among us where we are experiencing a growing love for those who are with us in the faith. John concludes this chapter by basically re-summing everything that he just said in verses 23 and 24. And he says this, and this is the commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. Once again, it is not our works. Our works are evidence of the spirit that is living in us. So this morning, as we wrap up, I know there are perhaps some here who hearing that hear condemnation. Hearts may be even a little harder after having heard it. And then there's some that by looking at 1 John, looking at the words of the apostle, the words of God, take comfort and reassurance in the fact that it's not about them, it's about God. And what they're resting in is a work that he's completed and that he's promised us, he's promised us that he will continue it until the day that he comes and we can rest in that. And some of us may actually be feeling a bit of the sting of our sin. Our hearts have softened a little bit more because of the word of God. And we're wondering, am I actually in the family? Can I know for certain that I am? Or I know that I'm not, but hey, I want to be. So as we go into communion, I'll be standing over here. Um, as we go into this time where we remember the sacrifice 
that was paid for us. You see, as we enter into a time of communion, I want us to remember that we're not remembering a time when Christ simply took our sins because that is what happened. He did take our sins upon himself, but he also gave us his righteousness. So this morning, as we, as we do communion together, let's remember the sacrifice that was paid that took our sins and then gave us this righteousness that will be expressed in our lives. Let's pray. Holy God, be with us as we wrestle with your word, Lord. Be with us um, as we seek to get to know you better. God, I just pray that each of us, Lord, would, would strive to see you for who you really are, to see you a little bit bigger than perhaps we've seen you before. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.